Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. And that's our hope, that as we engage with these meditations, this place might become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place Podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. Hi, my name is Mike Young. Tomorrow, we will witness the inauguration of Joe Biden as President of the United States. I started to wait until that event had happened to record this, but then I thought better of it. With all the uncertainty surrounding the events tomorrow, there's also much anxiety. We simply don't know what the day will bring. There are countless voices and talking heads on our various screens speaking into this anxiety, attempting to give it some meaning and to predict the possible outcomes. It's what we do as humans. We like certainty. However, what do we do when we just don't know? I know that I, for one, have said this so many times of late. I just don't know what to do with all the events that we've been experiencing. What do we do in these days of uncertainty? Here's Dr. Larry Taylor with When We Do Not Know. I'm reading selective verses from the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. I'll begin with verse 1, move around through the chapter. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign when these things are all to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, Take heed that no one leads you astray, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of birth pangs. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels, 
and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. But of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Now, here would seem to be a chapter of the Bible with something for everybody. Certainly, it's a happy hunting ground for people who are fascinated by the end of the world. Doomsayers and popular evangelists love to camp on this ground. They never tire of the hunt, and they have charts and maps of the territory which suggest that they know far more than the rest of us. Less obviously, there's also something here for people who pretty well ignore this chapter and others like it in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. They're put off by the weird language and cosmology, and they chalk it up to ancient ways of thinking that have very little to say to us moderns. These people simply do not know what to make of Mark chapter 13. For thoughtful Christians, however, here is a biblical text that raises important questions. What can we do with a prominent scripture text even when we do not know for sure all that it intends? Because after all, chapter 13 in the Gospel of Mark sits squarely within the boundaries of Mark's narrative of Jesus' passion. It's the discourse from the Lord just before he faces his cross. It is the last will and testament of Jesus in this gospel. In the gospel of Mark, setting is always more than mere location. Prepositions are extremely significant. Mark sets this discourse on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Jesus and his disciples had been in the temple, but they had just come out of the temple, and one of his disciples had called attention to the marvelous stones and the beautiful architecture of the temple. The temple appeared to be so permanent, just as the religious establishment seemed to be permanent. But Jesus replied, it's all coming down. There will not be left here one stone on top of another. Now Jesus had departed from the temple, which was, after all, temporary, and had positioned himself on the mount opposite the temple, a place 
of real permanence, we mustn't miss the symbolism of it. Along with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel and the farewell discourse in the Gospel of John, Mark chapter 13 is one of Jesus' three longest discourses. It's often called the Little Apocalypse. Apocalyptic was a kind of literature produced by the Jews during the 400-year period beginning two centuries before Christ and continuing two centuries after Christ. And the two outstanding examples of apocalyptic literature in our Bibles are the books of Daniel and Revelation. The place to start in understanding these unusual writings is not by regarding them as a detailed blueprint for the future. Rather, we have to begin by studying apocalyptic literature and the rules that govern its interpretation. It's simply not like any other portion of the Bible. And the person who sets out to interpret it with a crude literalism is certain to miss it. Too many well-intended theologues of apocalyptic simply have not done their homework. The studio lights and the TV cameras and the crowds of applauding worshipers beckon before the homework has been completed. The late Raymond Brown, distinguished New Testament scholar, said such apocalyptic literature is widely popular for all the wrong reasons. People believe it's a guide to how the world will end. They assume that the writers were given by Christ a detailed blueprint of the future communicated in coded symbols. Indeed, the Bible code is the title of a recent bestseller. Professor Harvey Cox of Harvard Divinity School writes that tireless textual sleuths struggle to ferret out esoteric ciphers hidden behind the words and behind the phrases of Scripture. They assume the Bible is laced with concealed messages and hidden clues about tomorrow. Of course, apocalyptic frenzy is having a field day in our society just now in the wake of 9-11. One national public opinion poll says that 62% of all Americans, not just Christians, but of all Americans have no doubt that Jesus will come again. Another poll reports that one-third believe the world will be coming to an end very soon. In the 1970s, Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, sold more than 40 million copies. In recent years, it's been Tim LaHaye's and Jerry Jenkins' bestsellers, the Left Behind series. Such millennialist readings of Scripture have always been popular, and we can access them now almost any time of day on the appropriate television channel. You know the one. Apocalyptic language, however, is highly figurative, symbolic, and often extravagant. 
It's not literal language, but imaginative language. We have to approach it as poets and visionaries rather than computer technicians and engineers if we hope to make sense of it. One of the problems in this little apocalypse of Mark 13 is that it weaves together material on two different subjects. Biblical scholars say that part of the time in these verses, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred about 70 A.D., 40 years or so after Jesus' death. At other times, he's talking about his own second appearing or the coming of the Son of Man. And the two subjects are mixed in such a way that it's very difficult to determine which one is meant at any given time or place. What's clear, however, is that in these verses, Jesus is talking about spiritual watchfulness. This subject makes the passage as pertinent for our generation of Christians as it was for those who heard it first. And it's also appropriate for this coming season of watchfulness. Could you not watch and pray with me for one hour, Jesus asked his disciples in the garden. It's a question that still comes down to modern disciples as we approach the Lenten season. The word watch occurs four times in the last five verses of Mark 13. It was a word that was frequently on the lips of Jesus. His first command to his disciples had been, follow. Now he adds the command, watch. The idea of watchfulness was also taken up by the early church. In almost every book of the New Testament, we hear the same warning. To Corinth, Paul wrote, Watch ye stand fast in the faith. To Colossae, he wrote, Continue in prayer and watch in the same. To Thessalonica, Paul writes, Let us watch and be sober. John wrote, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. There is something specifically Christian in the teaching about watchfulness. Jesus' teaching on the subject is closely related to his teaching about the nearness and the suddenness of the end. The burden of Jesus' preaching was that the kingdom of God is at hand. Time, therefore, is precious. Consequently, it doesn't really matter when Jesus is coming again. It's not important when the end of the world is going to occur. For us, the end of history comes when we die. The kingdom of God is at hand when we hear the gospel preached and we hear its call to repent. At that moment, we are face to face with the end of the world, the kingdom of God, and the second coming of Christ. All that does matter is how we respond to Christ's call for faith. It was natural that after his death, Jesus' disciples were very impatient for his return. It was the hope of Jesus' imminent return that sustained these disciples through the dark midnight of persecution that first century. But today, of course, conditions have changed. The church is not being persecuted in most places. It's just being ignored. The cathedrals are empty in post-Christian Europe. 
After 2,000 years, Jesus has not returned. Many evangelicals think the time is very near, but in every age since Christ, there have been those who were absolutely sure his return would be soon. I remember my Aunt Annie, dear soul, sister of my grandmother, wife of a Baptist pastor. She was truly a pious woman who lived in the world of the Bible. I loved her dearly. She was always certain that the Lord's return was imminent. She believed that she would live to see it. And one day she cornered me in the kitchen on the subject. And I was cornered. Don't you think Jesus' return is close, she demanded. I recognized it as a litmus test of the young preacher in the family, and I completely failed to satisfy her with my response. I knew it at the time because the best I could say was, well, Aunt Annie, I think it's closer than it's ever been before. <laughs> it didn't work. I made no points, and yet Jesus warned us not to be too sure about this matter. He cautioned us not to predict God's mind on the subject. He told us to be watchful. He told us to live by faith, to live in readiness, to watch. I agree it's so much easier to walk by sight where the path is clear than to walk by faith. But Jesus clearly taught us not to be overly concerned about his return or the time of the kingdom of God or the exact moment of the end of the world. And nearly all of Jesus' teaching on the subject of watchfulness, the thing for which we are told to watch is not his future appearing. The thing for which we are to watch is our own present opportunity and duty. We have no control over the appointed hour of Jesus' return, but we do have some control over what we do in the meantime. In colonial New England, an eclipse of the sun occurred one day. The state legislature was in session, and some of the legislators panicked and moved to adjourn. But one of them stood to his feet and said, Mr. Speaker, if it is not the end of the world and we adjourn, we shall appear to be fools. If it is the end of the world, I should choose to be found doing my duty. I move, therefore, sir, that candles be brought. It's a nice image, don't you think? Working in our duties by candlelight until a fuller light's available. In the first chapter of Acts, the angel asked the disciples after Jesus' ascension, you men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? You and I are sometimes like those disciples. We stand gazing into heaven and impatiently waiting for the Lord's return. Someone has rightly observed it's possible, it is possible to be so heavenly-minded you're no earthly good. 
We'd come much closer to the teaching and the example of Jesus if we spent this interim period between his appearances giving attention to the crying needs of our own time. We can be so intent on scanning the heavens for Jesus that we fail to see him here in the form of the least of these, our brothers. Why stand we gazing into heaven when Jesus is as near to us as the nearest person in need? Date fixers often have no sense of responsibility for the world whose destruction they await with fascinated detachment. We have sometimes preached a gospel with only a vertical dimension. Get right with God, we've told people. But the gospel of Jesus Christ also has a horizontal dimension. Care for your brother, feed his hunger, bind up his wounds, take care of his orphan, relieve his suffering, call attention to the degrading circumstances that keep him down. The cross was formed of two beams, one vertical, the other horizontal, a reminder that the gospel has these two movements, get right with God and get right with your brother and sister. There are just many things we do not know about the future of God's plans. But even when we don't know, there are still some things we can do and we can begin by watching. Living, watchful lives can be very demanding. The true state of watchfulness which Jesus called for doesn't consist of being constantly keyed up to a nervous expectation about Jesus' return or the end of the world. It consists rather in the calm, faithful fulfillment of each duty as it comes to us. So here's a word to both groups. The apocalyptic enthusiasts are warned to be cautious and to be less certain. And the jaded skeptics are told to be watchful and hopeful. It's a chapter with something for everybody. For what then specifically should we watch? Can we not watch even one hour? Certainly, we should watch for our opportunities to serve. The example of Jesus is the example of a servant. Opportunity for service comes only to those who are alert and ready for its appearance. Jesus always seized his opportunities. He encouraged his disciples to grasp chances for service rather than for wealth or honor. I ask you, what opportunity did Jesus have that you and I do not? His circumstances were narrow and limited. He was a peasant, a carpenter from a little backwater town, cut off before his prime. Our circumstances are vastly more blessed than his, and yet we blissfully pass from Jerusalem to Jericho with our eyes raised to heaven. If we even notice the man in the ditch, it's only to wonder why he had to be lying there at just the moment we passed. Like Isaiah, for Jesus, the very presence of need was enough to constitute a call. 
Surely we must watch for temptation. Here, too, is our only chance for victory, lying in our being prepared. Preparedness for temptation comes from such things as prayer and commitment and surrender. Sin is conquered not in the moment of temptation, but in the long, prayerful discipline preceding it. There was only one occasion in history when Edinburgh Castle was captured. Because of the steepness, the geography of it, the steepness of the rock on one side, the defenders were careless. They posted no sentries on that side. And in the gray mist of morning, a mere handful of the enemy scaled the precipitous rocks, surprised the garrison of the castle into surrender, and all was over. It was carelessness that let the castle be captured at its strongest point. Be watchful for temptation. It hits us at our strongest point. We have to be watchful for every expression of the truth. Jesus loved the truth wherever it came from. He was never afraid of it. What an irony that people who parrot that the truth shall make us free are often afraid of the truth when it doesn't agree with their preconceived notions. It is forever to the shame of the church that we have often fought scientific truth since the beginning of the scientific era, from Galileo to Freud to the leakies at Olduvai Gorge. We do not need to fear the truth. Every truth is an evidence of a purposeful God. The very fact that we can add two and two and get four is an evidence of God. There is no truth, whether in science or philosophy or religion, but that God created it and is already aware of it. The only thing we need to fear is our unduly narrow concept of the truth. Several years ago, on a visit to the home of Albert Schweitzer in Kaiserberg, Alsace, France, I saw a quote from the great Dr. Humanitarian. Truth has no hour, he said. Its time is now, always. By faith and in hope, we may know where it's all going to end without knowing exactly when or how. Even when we don't know such things, we can still watch and live in hope. And we can trust the one who's gone on before us to explore the future. Mark ends his gospel by telling the women on Easter morning at the tomb that they will see Jesus in, the, in Galilee because he's gone before them. There's a businessman who travels from city to city by plane, as so many do. And he says that sometimes to pass away the time in the airport waiting for his plane, he'll read detective stories. He's learned to like them, and he's learned some things about how they're structured. And when his flight is announced, he knows that he'll probably never finish this particular story once he gets home. So he says he turns to the back of the book to see how it all comes out. 
we can do the same thing, you know. It's a fairly easy move from Mark 13 to the Revelation. We can turn to the back of the book and read, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's where it's all going to end. Meanwhile, Mark chapter 13 has something for everybody. It speaks to those who expect too much. It speaks to those who expect too little. It even speaks to those who no longer expect anything at all. Let's pray, shall we? We ask, Lord, that this message from your word will speak to us where we are. Whether apocalyptic enthusiast, jaded skeptic, or something in between, we have found our way to the Lord's house today to worship, to be with others, and perhaps to listen to a word from you. So speak that word, we pray. Help us to accept it, to assimilate it, to depart with it ringing in our ears and residing in our heart, however uneasily. And grant that we may live this week watchful lives, watchful for the person who knocks at our door, the person who is close to us whom we have seen so many times we take him or her for granted. Help us to see all the many ways you come to us day by day, asking, are you watching? Are you listening? Here I am. In the moments that follow, convince us of those things we need to do, those places we need to go this week, those words we need to say, those letters we need to write, those extended hands of help that we need to offer. For surely, if the morning's worship has had that effect on us, then we have heard and we are on the watch. All for him, we pray. Amen. I've mentioned here before the church of my youth. It was a place that took the scriptures quite literally. Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Noah built a great boat large enough to save all life on the planet. And the end times were laid out for us to see in the book of Daniel and Revelation. My standard description of its location theologically is that it was just to the left of snake handling. And such certainty was the lens through which we were taught to look at the world. 
And make no mistake, it was a very cloudy lens through which to claim such certainty as we were taught to claim. My response to it eventually was to discard it with much cynicism and smugness. And it was with much grace and patience that God has granted me that I've come to recognize my overcorrection. Could we not watch and pray just this hour? It's a wonderful time for such watchfulness. And as Larry points out, it's a good discipline for all of us. Those who are certain, those skeptics, and those who expect nothing at all. Something that very much resonated with me in this meditation today was Larry's pointing out Jesus' instructions early on to his disciples to follow. And then later, towards the end, to watch. One of the fruits of my cynicism was to stop claiming the name Christian and rather identify as a follower of Jesus. It's a bit arrogant of me, if I'm honest. I live my life much like everyone else, and it's often on autopilot of sorts. My routines are set. My actions are often rote. My habitual and unseen triggers provoke actions that do not resemble Jesus at all. And just like driving a familiar road and not recognizing the miles as they pass, our following has often morphed into self-justifying habits. But watchfulness, that seems like instruction for this time. As a practice, it brings my awareness to the present, this moment. Watchfulness for service. Because as Larry said, the very presence of need constitutes a call. Watchfulness for temptations. They come at us at our strongest point. Watchfulness for truth. For every truth is evidence for a purposeful God. And the only thing we need to fear is our unduly narrow concepts of truth. In my contemplations of these days, on the occasion of the celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King, it seems that a way forward, not a certain way, but a way to practice such watchfulness just might be this. Love, practiced in the present moment, in actual actions toward the person we find right in front of us. There's a practice in that for all of us. I hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of A Thin Place with Dr. Larry Taylor. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send them along to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. If this has been something meaningful for you, share it with your friends, drop a link on social media, or listen to it with a group. It's available to stream on all of the major platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify. So much gratitude to Larry and Linda for allowing us to hear these meditations again during these challenging days. Until next week, this has been A Thin Place with Dr. Larry Taylor, and I'm Mike Young. Grace and peace.